Go ahead and grab your Bibles and join me in the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 33. Um, last week, we uh, had the final plague against Egypt meted out by God himself. All throughout the plagues, God had been demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt, over those false gods that the Egyptians would worship. He proved himself mighty over the Nile by turning it to blood. God proved himself mighty over various animals, the frogs, the flies, the gnats, and later on, the locusts. God proved his power over nature, bringing about a pestilence that killed the cattle in the field. He brought painful boils on the people. He brought about huge hail that killed any people or cattle who were unsheltered. And then came in plague number nine, the darkness. It wasn't just a gloomy gray of winter. It wasn't even the darkness that we would associate with night. God shut out the light of the sun, moon, and stars, and even flame, making it so dark that the Egyptians wouldn't even leave their homes. They could see nothing. All the while, the Israelites could do whatever they wanted. God proved himself greater than the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile. They worshiped the sun. They worshiped all sorts of animals, a few dozen of them actually. And they trusted their gods to keep them safe through various weather events, to prevent diseases. They trusted their gods to provide food and fertility and prosperity. And Jehovah God, the God of these smelly slaves, their God is proving Egypt's gods to all be powerless. But of all the false gods of Egypt, and they had plenty, of all the false gods of Egypt, there was one of their gods that could speak. There was one of their gods who could act with intent, and that was Pharaoh himself. He was revered as a god. And it's plague number 10 that affected him personally when the firstborns were all killed of the Egyptians. From Pharaoh's perspective, some of the plagues were just simple nuisances. When the Nile turned to blood, yeah, that was a nuisance, but he had servants to dig wells and take care of him. Others of the plagues were kind of Harsh economic hits on the nation. Some of the plagues didn't really hurt him personally. I mean, he knew that he couldn't remain Pharaoh if his people were suffering like that for long, but, but they didn't really affect him personally so much. The boils, that hurt him personally. The darkness stopped him like it stopped everyone else, but it was the death of the firstborn. That was personal. Pharaoh, who viewed himself as a god, whose son would be next in line to be in that same position, 
Pharaoh suffered directly at the hand of the Almighty. But this is precisely what God told Moses was going to happen, didn't he? In Exodus chapter 3, as God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush and commissioning him to be the leader of Israel, in verse 19 of Exodus chapter 3, we read this, but God, God speaking says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so God, in his might, is compelling the Pharaoh to let the people go. Today, we finally, finally, get to the namesake of this book, the Exodus. We get to the exit as they finally are leaving their enslavements. So I invite you to follow along, if you would, Exodus chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we can know that it is truth and that your word is powerful, and that your word is profitable for us today. Help us to learn through, the, through this text more about you and how you want to live, how you want to uh, be known and adored in our lives so, Father, guide our hearts, guide my words, help us to honor you in how we respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm about to do something I don't think I've ever done from the pulpit before. I'm going to reference the princess bride. And by that response, I know many of you will know what I mean when I say this inconceivable 
Now, for those of you who don't know, it's fine. You're not missing out. Um, there was a character in the movie, The Princess Bride. His name was Vizzini. He saw evidence with his own eyes of the stranger dressed in black following them, pursuing them, and getting closer. And every once in a while, he'd look back and see the man dressed in black and say, inconceivable. He couldn't fathom how this man kept gaining on them. Today's passage is viewed by many skeptics as inconceivable. Those who would try to understand the Bible to mean something other than what the words and grammar indicate would read this passage and declare, well, that couldn't possibly be what happened. Just because you or I or anyone else could not imagine how it could transpire that, that the Egyptians would just give over their wealth to a slave nation. Or just because we could not conceive of a population about double the metro Omaha area getting up and just walking away together. Just because a person cannot fathom the Exodus account does not mean that God is restricted by such small thinking. We're going to see several details in the Exodus account that seem impossible. But our big idea this morning is God does the impossible. And praise the Lord for that. He has done the impossible all throughout Scripture. Scripture begins with God speaking everything into existence. That's actually inconceivable, isn't it? To speak and have nothing become everything. Jesus spoke and Lazarus rose from the dead, came out of the tomb. All the religious leaders of his day wanted to kill Lazarus because it was inconceivable that Jesus could be God in the flesh and therefore have the power to raise the dead with the power of his voice. Not long after that, Jesus himself died fully, completely dead and rose the third day. God has been doing the impossible all throughout scripture and he does the impossible today. What is more inconceivable and mind-blowing and utterly unfathomable, unfathomable, unmeasurable is that God would save sinners. That he would save me or that he would save you or that he would save anyone for we are all sinners who deserve to receive God's eternal wrath. We deserve that not because you or I are worse than anyone else, but it's because God is so good. It's because he is so holy that he is perfect. It is absolutely amazing that God would save, that he would do the impossible and save sinners. 
So yes, God does the impossible. That shouldn't surprise us. But don't take my word for it. Let's see God at work in the words of Scripture this morning. In verses 33 through 36, we see the complete plunder of the Egyptians. The slaves are all freed. When a culture normalizes taking advantage of certain groups of people, it's really hard for that culture to let that go. In our own country, the South was unwilling to give up their really cheap labor, the slaves. The North had to go to war to make them do it. Pharaoh was not that much different. Pharaoh had very, very cheap labor. He did not want to pay market rate wages to get his bricks. And even lower than brick making, many of the Hebrew people were keeper of sheep. They were shepherds and raised other forms of cattle as well. In that society, that's the lowest of the low. The Egyptians certainly didn't want to take over those jobs. Oh sure, they liked the products, they liked the wool and the textiles, they liked the meat. They certainly didn't want to do that labor. Yet as soon as the 10th plague was complete, it didn't matter what they were going to lose when the, when the Israelites left, they just wanted them gone. Just like that. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out. For they said, we're all going to die. If God could go through our land in one night and kill the firstborn all like that, what hope do the rest of us have? That was their thinking. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The, the, the image we get here is they just grabbed what they could, what they needed, and they just left. The text is specific, saying that the Egyptians were urgent, and then um, a little bit later it says that they send them out of the, of the land in haste. Another a word that means right away, now, get going. You're, you're not moving fast enough, please leave. There had been so much death. The Egyptians all feared that they could be next, so they pushed Israel out so quickly that they just had to grab what they could and leave. But remember, the people had been told by Moses what to do. We read that in earlier passage, go and Ask them for their silver and gold. Ask them for, um, for clothing. And this is back in chapter 11, verse 2, if you want to look that up. Uh, he says, go ask and, and they will give it to you. To the victor goes the spoils. This is verses 35 and 36 of our text today. The people of Israel had done what Moses told them. They asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given them favor. See, even though it seems like, it doesn't seem like, it's actually happening that the, the Egyptians are, are giving all of this supply to the Israelites, who's actually making it happen? It's God, 
right? Because God does the impossible. People hang on to their shiny things really tightly. That gold, that silver, those extra changes of clothes. Uh, now, extra changes of clothes don't sound terribly important to us because we have so much. Uh, but to have another change of clothes would have been a sign of wealth in that culture. The Israelites had very little outside of the clothes on their backs, their flocks, and so on. So as inconceivable as it seems by merely asking, they walk out of Egypt with incredible wealth. All that gold and silver, so much so that the people were able to donate, this, this comes later, the people were able to donate to the tabernacle that which they wanted to give and it was more than enough to do all the gold and silver settings that had to be done for the tabernacle. Um, never mind the gold that was wasted on the idol. Remember, as Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days receiving the law from God, and Aaron, of all the people who should have known better, it was Aaron, but Aaron tells the people, collect, collect up the gold and we'll fashion a golden calf in order to worship that. And all that gold ends up getting completely destroyed. So that's not part of the gold that goes towards the tabernacle. Aside from that, they still had so much. That's how thoroughly they plundered the Egyptians of their gold and silver. In modern parlance, we would say that they were the victor without a single shot fired. They had no military. They had no might in that sort of sense. It was all of God. The Egyptians should be bitter because they know what they're losing as the Israelites are leaving, yet they show favor to Israel and just hand over whatever they ask for. So we see the complete plunder of Egypt. We see the massive escape in verses 37 through 39. Verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, so they're heading east, they're heading towards the promised land. About 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. 600,000 men, and we learn actually later in another passage that this is men aged 20 or older. It's um, battle-ready men is the terminology that it uses. Uh, so 600,000 men plus their wives, plus their children. Surely not everybody had a wife. Surely they didn't all have children, but it doesn't take a whole lot of math to figure out that this was a lot of people. Conservative estimates bring it to two to two and a half million people. Masses and masses of people all heading the same direction. Verse 38 says that a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. This was no small group of people. It says that foreigners were there, Egyptians. Um, it, we're not told all who is in this mixed multitude. I like to think that some of the magicians are in that mixed multitude. Remember back in the early 
plagues. There were magicians that Pharaoh called upon to do, to show their power to do some of the same things that Moses and Aaron were doing. And then all of a sudden, the magicians say, you know what? Israel's God's greater than ours, and we don't hear about them anymore. We have these people that saw God's power firsthand. I bet, okay, I'm not a gambling man, but I would imagine, that's a better word, that there were some of those close advisors to the Pharaoh that said, you know what? Israel's God is for real. And they went with them. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God is giving, making his covenant with Abraham. And he says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last part is pointing to Jesus. That first part was true in Pharaoh's day. It's true today still. Those who would be a blessing to God's chosen people will be blessed. And those who, are, who desire to be a curse against the people of Israel will be cursed. Pharaoh's living that out in our passage. Rather than being a blessing to Israel, he has chosen to continue to make life harder. Remember when Moses and Aaron first approached him about letting the people of Israel go? He said, nope, I'm not going to do it. And the work that they're doing with the bricks, I'm going to make it impossible for them to do it. They had to then go gather their own straw. So there wasn't enough time to gather the supply and make the bricks, and they kept falling behind. Pharaoh was evil in every shade of that term. And God is, going to, is putting a curse on him for it. By the way, God's nature never changes. What was Wrong to God back in the beginning is still wrong to God today. What is right and holy and pure and just to God back in the beginning is what is right and pure and holy and just to God today. Now, he's revealed himself over time, giving us more and more information. So it seems like things have changed over time because remember now we don't do sacrifices because Jesus has fulfilled that sacrifice. But the character and nature of God doesn't change. We call that, in a, we use a theological term to, to describe that it's called immutability. God is immutable. He never changes. God has always been one to offer grace. Always. God has always been the one to offer grace. Pharaoh refused to obey God. But many of the Egyptians saw how Israel's God completely disgraced and even destroyed their gods. So they joined Israel. That's God showing grace. Verse 37 gives us an actual number of men, the 600,000. And if you uh, read commentators, read books about uh, the Exodus, they will point to this verse and say uh, that, that that word that is translated as thousands could mean squads, could be translated as a military term of, 
uh, of a squadron. And if the author intends to use this term to mean 600 squadrons of people left Egypt, then there were only maybe 30,000, give or take, that are leaving Egypt. Um, So why does our translation tell us 600,000 rather than 600 squads? That's a good question to ask. Um, And and that's actually consistent among uh, English translations. Why would I argue for the larger 600,000 men uh, culminating to be about two, two and a half million, uh, if that's not what the text demands. Well, uh, let's follow the logic of, let's follow the, the textual progression in the book of Exodus. Remember Exodus chapter 1, we started off with 70 people coming into Egypt, and that's when the 430 years starts. And it says that God blessed them and made them fruitful and they multiplied. And various times, uh, you, you fast forward just a little bit, just long enough for Joseph to be dead and the, and the uh, subsequent Pharaoh or Pharaohs to not remember who Joseph was. Why? Because obviously the Pharaoh was going to take credit for what Joseph did. So Joseph's name wasn't really part of their history. And he starts taking advantage of the Israelites and they start recognizing that the Israelites are multiplying and growing and growing and growing so much so that he saw them as a threat to the very existence of Egypt. And what did he do? He said, kill all the baby boys. You don't do that if it's just a few thousand. It had to be a significant number of people. When it says that God blessed them and multiplied, he really did. But there's more than just running through a line of logic throughout the Exodus narrative. Um, We can fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 38 when Moses is... um, instituting the law. The law stated that um, every man who was 20 years old and up needed to pay a half shekel sanctuary tax for the year. In Exodus chapter 38 verse 26, uh, it says, collect a becca or a half shekel per head for everyone who is listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. So they knew how many men they had because they collected the taxes. You can't tax people if you don't know how many you have. You can't know how much money you're supposed to have at the end if you don't know how many people you have. In fact, Numbers, Numbers chapter 1, which I know as we're reading through the Bible in a year, and you get to Numbers, you're like, no! One of the best ways to get through Numbers is to follow a recording. That does help. But Numbers gives us details. Numbers chapter 1 gives us the exact number of people, rounded probably to a 50, so I guess I shouldn't have said exact. But we get a a close approximate number of people for every tribe, and you add them all up, and at the end of Numbers 1, we read this summary, Numbers 1, verses 45 and 46. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their fathers' houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. That's basically the same as saying in Exodus chapter 12 that 600,000 men left Egypt. Very consistent. So why did our English translations translate 
uh, verse 37 of Exodus chapter 12 is 600,000 men. This is why. Because we understand scripture by other scripture. And the other scripture is clear. It was a huge multitude. So the issue that some skeptics would have is that, well, the number doesn't have to be 600,000. Actually, yes, it does. Another issue people have is, well, it's impossible to have millions of people plus their animals and plus the foreigners who joined them to all just walk away. I mean, if you've been in Omaha at rush hour, you know that half that number of people can't get home in a reasonable fashion after work. Here's the thing. It is impossible for millions of people to go off on the, and, and in some organized fashion get out of a place in, in any short order. But impossible is the point. Impossible is the point of Exodus. God does the impossible. The numbers here are not lying or exaggerating. The grand total of people is two plus million, not mere thousands. And all of this to fulfill the promise of God, verses 40 through 42. We've seen the complete plunder. We've seen the massive escape. And all of this just fulfills God's promise. God told Abraham details of the exodus before Abraham even had the one promised son, Isaac. Genesis chapter 15 Verse 13, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And then we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. A couple things to note here. Uh, today's a, a good passage to remind us, to remind ourselves of a basic understanding of biblical interpretation. We understand that when we're reading the Bible, that sometimes the Bible uses approximations. Okay? So rounded numbers are okay. We do this today saying that Israel was in Egypt for 400 years is not contradictory to other passages of Scripture that say Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. One is a rounded number and one is more specific. Saying that there were 600,000 men leaving is not significantly different than later stating there were 603,550. Right? We understand that averages and approximations are not contradictions. The other thing to note is that when God chooses to reveal precise numbers, he does. And that's what we see here with the, the timing, the 430 years. The time that Jacob moved to Egypt was exactly 430 years, it says, to the day before the people left. The precision of God in making things happen is just absolutely amazing. Because as you read the narrative of these plagues, all the, the times that, um, that Pharaoh hesitates. Remember when, uh, when Pharaoh asked Moses, please pray that this plague be removed from me and do it tomorrow. 
rather than fall on your knees right now and please pray that this plague be taken away. He said, do it tomorrow. Um, all, the, all the ways that, that this had to be coordinated just perfectly, but God is infinite and nothing is too hard for him. 430 years on the very day, they leave. Coincidence? Inconceivable, impossible, unfathomable? Not for our God. One more thing, verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord himself closely watched over them as they made their escape. One of the great false doctrines that is out there is that God initiates something and then keeps his hands off of it. And there's a logic to this this fallacy. It makes sense to human reasoning, but the Bible gives no such indication. Go back into the book of Genesis before Jacob moves into Egypt. How did Jacob and his clan survive that great famine at the end of Genesis? They survived because Jacob's sons wanted to murder Joseph, and instead of murdering Joseph, they threw him in a pit, and they sold him into slavery, and he ended up in prison, and he ended up being uh, maligned and abused and back in another prison, and finally is noticed by the Pharaoh because he could interpret prophecies. All those happenstance coincidences all led to Egypt having food and being the source of salvation for Jacob and his clan to survive. Jacob and the 69 others who were with him, those first 70 that go into Egypt, survived because God had prepared a way. How did the Israelites grow in Egypt from just 70 to Many hundreds of thousands to millions. Even in the face of harsh and direct opposition from Pharaoh. Why? It's because God kept blessing them. So the the Lord watching over them as they leave was just kind of a picture of how he had been watching over them the whole time. And as part of their memorial, they would keep a vigil during the Passover feast. Our God is a God who does the impossible. So let me ask you, what seems impossible to you? What is that insurmountable thing that's in your life right now that's hard to see around? might be an impossible situation at your job or with a family member. It might be a health issue. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is promising to remove every trouble in your life. I, I'm just going to flat out tell you, he doesn't do that. He, he brings trials and struggles into our lives to help us grow closer to him. But what I am saying is that this God who who can do the impossible, who does do the impossible, knows your situation, and he knows what he is doing. 
and you can trust him. And when it's all said and done, you'll be able to look back and bless him for how he handled that situation that seemed so impossible to you. I don't know how God wants to use this truth in your life this week, but I pray that he does. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so often short-sighted, nearsighted. We only see the trouble that's right in front of us, and we forget that you are the God who does the impossible. Lord, we are so weak, and you know this. You designed us to be weak so that we would depend on you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to see beyond our struggles and to trust you in them. Drive us to our knees to pray, to pray for strength, to pray for help, to pray for relief. Because sometimes, like you did with the, the Israelites, you do pull them out of the impossible situation. But for generations before this moment, there were all sorts of people who grew up in slavery, lived and died in slavery with just the promise of relief, never having actually experienced it. So Lord, I don't know how you want to take us through our difficult times, through that which we believe to be impossible. But I know you will. And that's not a, a false hope. That's a confident statement I can make because the word of God tells us that anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has an eternity separated from sin separated from struggle, no more pain, no more loss. And as impossible as that seems to our feeble thinking, your word declares it's true, and your word demonstrates that you are the God who can do these impossible things. So, Father... Take us from this place and remind us of who you are as we face our struggles this week. In Jesus' name, amen.